from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Zach, man, what have you been drinking? You know, I actually got a chance to go out for a relatively rare evening out. Went to uh, actually a, a live podcast taping, not not of ours, <laughs> uh, for another podcast that I listened to. And then uh, afterwards went out with a friend for a couple of cocktails at a bar that I've talked about on here before called Roquette here in Seattle. And it was a re- I had a one particular really interesting drink that was interesting to me on two levels. So the first was that you know, an experience that I can only kind of describe as that thing where you learn a new word and then all of a sudden you keep hearing it uh-huh. everywhere or reading it everywhere. We did the episode, Tim and I, while you were out with uh, Steven Soderbergh about Singani 63. And of course, like I opened the cocktail menu at this place and what do I see but a cocktail with Singani 63? And I was like, well, I feel like I should order that drink. And especially when combined with a very interesting name called Panic Button, which I will explain, and a very strange but appealing to me garnish, uh, I decided to order it. So the drink is functionally kind of a like a sour um, made with egg white. So it's gin and Singani 63 uh, with grapefruit, orgeat, lemon, and then egg white. So served up. And then with what they call a Szechuan buzz button, which is like not a Szechuan peppercorn, but I think the flower. So okay. after the button has like opened, uh, it's about the size of a small raspberry. And it was sort of set on top of the egg white. And the bartender explained to me, I sort of was like, well, like, obviously I'm supposed to incorporate this into the drink somehow, right? And he said, yeah, what we tend to suggest to people is that they eat the flour about halfway through the drink. And for those who might not be super familiar with what Szechuan peppercorns do, the best way I can describe it is they basically take your mouth, your taste buds on a weird trip. So things taste different. It makes your tongue very like tingly or numb, depending on how much you have. And it was wild to have it kind of midway through this drink because the drink starts out as a very pleasant kind of floral, like I said, sort of gin sour. And then you eat the the Szechuan buzz button and all of a sudden it's like a very different drink. I think the fruitiness of everything comes out more. Um, so kind of like instead of just like the citrus fruits, but like a lot of banana uh-huh. and mango and the florality kind of amps up. It's really wild. It was a really fun drink, a, a kind of a cool interactive component, I suppose. And like I said, it was sort of like getting two drinks in one. So that was definitely the highlight for me of the last week. Uh, anything you've had, Adam, that's been particularly exciting. Are you able to go out and drink anywhere? Or are you still just, slugging back whiskey at home at night. So I have not been slugging back whiskey actually, but we had, um, we had Josh, uh, over for dinner last Saturday night Nice. and we opened, uh, two nice bottles of wine. And one was, he brought over Catherine and Pierre Breton. It's a, Bor- it was a Bourguil mm-hmm. from 2002, Ooh. which was really cool. Uh, we're very lucky that in New York, there are some wine shops, including the one that's near Josh's uh, apartment in our office called Flatiron that just always seemed to have some like older vintage of stuff for still yep. pretty you know fair prices. So he grabbed that and brought that over. And then I had had a 2009 uh, bottle of Chateau de Beaucastel, uh Chateau de Pop. Nice. And so we popped them both and had some – and I would made like steak frites and it was a lot of fun. Um, and we put – the baby to bed and uh, Naomi drank with us and it was it was a really good time. But that was like the only really drinking I did over the last yeah. week. 
So, uh, so yeah, so, so not so not much else going on there. I'm excited because I think maybe this weekend we'll have a little bit more of an opportunity. But then in two weeks, um, I'm super pumped because Naomi and I are going to Lancaster over the Cinco de Mayo Derby weekend um, to see her parents and bring Esty there for the first time. And we are getting the afternoon and night off on Saturday to go Ooh. to the Horse Inn, which is, as everyone who listens probably knows, one of my favorite bars and restaurants. And they are, of course they would be, because their name is the Horse Inn, throwing a epic derby party. Yeah. So that should be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'll report back on that. But, you know, I mean, otherwise, just kind of hanging out, you know, not really hanging out, just <laughs> doing, my, <laughs> doing my thing. Just existing. Yep. Yeah, I know so, the feeling. So I think one of the things we want to talk to talk about today is the idea of private labels. Mm-hmm. And especially private labels on the high end. And the reason I want we want to talk about that is for, for you know two sort of things that happened this week. Uh, you know when we were going into thinking about recording prior to this podcast, uh, that sort of caused us to want to talk about it. One is in the Vine Pair offices, we have been tasting all of Kirkland's private label high end wines. Um, tasting seemed just sort of like something that we we did with Trader Joe's a few years ago. Um, thought it would be really interesting to try. You know, like. The Kirkland Barolo, the Kirkland Brunello de Montalcino, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, in addition, you know, Zach, you had slacked me about a new whiskey that was being released by Total Wine and Total Wine only. This kind of like their uh, competitor to all of the super high end, you know, Buffalo Trace whiskeys. Um, and you know, what we started chatting about is like, who are these for, and like. Would someone who would normally, for example, buy Blanton's, which is sort of who this this bourbon says they're sort of targeting, ever buy this instead? Um, yeah. And, you know, I think private label has always been really interesting to me because, you know, obviously that's Trader Joe's almost entire business as a concept, right? Almost everything there is private label. That is Kirkland or Costco's business to an extent. But I think that, like, one of the things that's so interesting is that – in the in terms of wine and luxury product and, and spirits especially, they are luxury products, and I feel like luxury products often people who consume luxury products so high end are I think a lot less interested in private label, and so I often wonder like who the really expensive private labels are for. Now I'm not talking about like the eight ninety nine cab at Trader Joe's where they're telling you that this is a hundred dollar cab that they bought with bulk juice. Fine. What like whatever. That's 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 for a consumer that wants to think that they're smart. Right. And there's a lot of those consumers. What I'm talking about is like the Kirkland Barolo that's still like thirty something bucks and has been rated by James Suckling and they you know they have a huge sticker on the label and they say it's ninety three points. Or even this bourbon that is, you know, at Sorry, now I just blanked on total the, wine. That total wine. Sorry, even this bourbon that's a total wine that is like I think sixty or seventy bucks. Well, and they're like single barrel is like two hundred bucks. Yeah. So who is this for? Because these are brand. These are private label brands, right? Brands created by these. You know, I think Total Wine's a little bit smarter that they actually they gave it a brand name. Yeah. Right. They're not. They're not just saying it's like the to, it's total wine bourbon. Whereas at Kirkland, um, you know, these are. Kirkland branded wines, but both exist, right? Trader Joe's is very well known to have Trader Joe's selections. And then also these brands that 
wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nudge are brands you can only find at Trader Joe's because they are the same kind of thing, just with a with a fake brand and a you know pretty label, et cetera, which is what this bourbon is at Total Wine. So I don't know, like you know, what who do you think these brands are for? Oh, see, to me, I think these brands are mostly for the same kind of person who gets excited about a the same general class of person who says, oh man, there's this $10 bottle or this $8 bottle at Trader Joe's and you can't tell the difference between this and a $25 or $30 bottle of wine. To me, these are just that same concept scaled up and given, not given, they, they are in the case of like the Kirkland Signature wines, they're, it's a Barolo for sure. It's a Brunello de Montalcino. They're not like misappropriating that name, but it's, you know, they're just acting functionally as a negotiant or at least a, you know, whatever, the the bottler and labeler or something, whatever. They're slapping the Kirkland signature label on existing product. But I think it's a, it's to the same kind of person who who wants to feel a certain kind of cleverness or like they're getting one over on people by saying like, oh, you like Brunello de Montalcino? Well, I got a Brunello de Montalcino and you paid $80 for yours and I paid 35 for mine. Aren't I smarter? And I mean... I'm making it seem like these people are morons and that's not really what I mean. I think there's a question to some extent of whether, you know, in some cases, and I'd be curious to hear if you have, if you can share what the staff thought of the Kirkland signature wines. I think in a lot of cases, these private label label products can be good. There's a long history. I think especially actually in, in spirits and bourbon and whatnot of some of these private label wines being actually, or sorry, private label bourbons and whatnot being highly desirable as collector's items many years after the fact because they're you know often made by highly reputable distilleries and often in the same fashion as their more famous counterparts i don't necessarily think that's what's going on with this specific bourbon from total wine which i have tried and was deeply unimpressed by but i think it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that you could get quality product wine spirits whatever in the semi-generic packaging that comes with these private label brands, or at least not a recognizable standalone brand available at other locations. And I think for some people, like I said, that's just like, there's an appeal to saying, I paid less for this product than someone paid for what they view as a comparable product. And and that that is what I think these are largely trading on. I mean, I guess... Just at a I higher f- price point. Right. I mean, I guess for me, I always have thought that that market really is still on the lower end, meaning, right, it's the person that wants to pay $12 for a Cabernet Sauvignon than 100 and say that that's what they're getting. And I think when you look at, like, the wine clubs that are popular for doing the same kind like that those are the price points they're operating in. I think when it's... I wonder who is buying the Kirkland Barolo or Brunello. I'm sure you are right, but they are still not cheap wines. The problem is they're also not good. And when we well, tasted right, and when we tasted them, because I do think that for some of these super high end wines from these regions, like you, some of the price is justified because they are expensive to make with very expensive land and the best, you know, like making these wines in bulk to achieve the price you have to achieve to it the the masses of Kirkland, right, and be available in all the Costco's, et cetera. I think is really difficult, which means you're basically going to a co op, and if you're going to a co op, right, like. High-end wines, I don't think co-ops do very well. I think a co-op can for sure deliver a really delicious, like, 
so let's take the Longe region of Nebbiolo, right? You know, of of, of Italy, right? Where where we have Barolo and Barbaresco, et cetera. Like I'm sure that in the Longe, where they also have Moscato, you can get a really great private label Moscato from a co-op. But like, can Probably. you get Barolo? At a massive, massive, massive scale that you need for Kirtland to still somehow be able to sell it for thirty bucks, I really don't think so. Like, and from what we tasted, you you don't right. The the wine was just bad, and same with some of these other wines. The, so then the only reason they sell is because you truly are appealing to that one person who wants to say, "Ha, you pay a hundred dollars for your bottle of Barolo, I paid thirty. But then I would argue that that person like doesn't only really cares about the wine, so they can say that. Right, be, because if for sure if they're, if they're interested in wine, as like even Keith was saying to me when we were tasting them, like if you're just interested in like having really delicious Nebbiolo at a better price, then buy Longe Nebbiolo. Yeah. You don't have to buy Parolo. You know, like th- those are the things that I think are so interesting about these for me. So I, I I all I do wonder then like what's the point of submitting it? Like who who are you trying to sell these to? And I and I feel the same with bourbon. So because what this all then just is is a cash grab, right? It's a way to make the margins bigger for the retailer. That's why everyone does this, and for they're sure. and they're assuming that what you as the consumer want is just the ability to say that you have a Barolo for thirty when someone else is paying a hundred, and actually the retailer is probably making twenty on that, right? Yeah. So or 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 twenty five, but that that's that's what ensures the wine's not going to be very good and. The other question I have is, who are people pulling this out at dinner, or do private label wines, especially the ones that are branded by the retailer, you know, with the retailer's name on it, suffer the same sort of issues that box wine does? Which is like, maybe you are getting a better value for money, but are people going to serve that at a party for friends, at dinner, et cetera? Like, or are they going to somehow try to hide it in a decanter? That I think is something that, in especially in the American wine market, is still very challenging. Consumers want to have a bottle on the table that they can feel like is saying something about them. And like, if you put a bottle on the table of Kirkland Signature Wine, that says something about you for sure. But I don't know if most consumers are like would be pleased with what that could say about them. Yeah, well, definitely, I think you're right that there is a weird, slight, or I should say, there's some kind of contradiction at terms in a way with these higher end private label wines because i don't doubt that there are lots of people who are very willing to open a bottle of private label wine that's you know a 13 dollar red blend or an eight dollar sauvignon blanc or whatever right and they just they like wine they want to have something at dinner and they're having people over or not or whatever and like they just they're not they're not looking at their wine the choice of wine, their wine consumption, the wine they serve to people as as being something that, that makes a statement for them other than like, we have provided you with wine. And for the kind of person who might gravitate towards recognizable regions like Barolo, etc., then yeah, maybe those people are crossing into territory where they are, I don't know if sophisticated enough is the right way to put it. They're aware enough of the reputation of these regions or they've tasted enough of these kinds of wines to know that it's something that they like. And it may be that these wines are largely wines that people consume, you know, kind of behind closed doors. Right. And a lot of people drink wine with just their families or whomever. And that's, that may be the thing, right? It's their sort of wine that they have when they're not having people over. And when they're having people over, they open the the brand name Nebbiolo. I, I don't know. 
I, I do know this. I, I've known a few people who worked for Costco in the wine department over the years, and they are incredibly knowledgeable about what their customers want. And that's why when you go to Costco and you look at their wine selection, they have a huge range of different things, including lots of well-known name brand wines of yeah. various types. And then also the Kirkland Signature stuff. And they obviously don't get to where they are by make by putting a bunch of stuff on shelves that doesn't sell. And I don't mean to say they never make mistakes. I'm sure that they do. But I imagine that they have a pretty good idea of the type of consumer who's going to buy the $30 Kirkland Signature Barolo. And, and folks, if you're listening out there, if you are if you work for Costco or one of the other private label companies and you want to let us know a little bit, get, tell us what we've got right or wrong, please, podcast at vinepair.com. Adam and I love to get that kind of feedback. It helps us better understand the industry. But I do suspect that there's, there is a market for these wines. I mean, I don't think, especially, you know, Costco is pretty careful about the Kirkland Signature brand. As funny as that might sound to you or oh, me. Oh, no, they are. I, it, it's something that I learned from from knowing these people a little bit is that they are very – it is not as much of a – like to to contra – to pose it against the some of the other examples you've made. And I don't know anyone at Trader Joe's. They may have been just as uh, disciplined and, and particular about their private label stuff. I kind of suspect not. Or at least they have a different sort of aesthetic and different market in some ways, but with uh, Kirkland signature stuff, you know, there it's a a very big undertaking to sort of decide what exactly they're going to produce. And at least from the people I've known who've worked there to hear them tell it, you know, they have a lot of recognizable producers who come to them. Now, sometimes maybe it's because they have excess or they just know that, you know, Kirkland signature is going to be a place where they can move product and they may have a, you know, they may have had a bumper crop or who knows what happened. But for whatever reason or another, it's not just sort of Costco out there on the bulk juice market being like, eh, what can we get? Eh, whatever, slap a label on it, call it good. I don't mean to say that it's the finest wines on the planet. And it may be that when you get into these well-known to us regions that have a very specific kind of typical taste profile and a lot of high-end, very high-quality producers that you're sort of inevitably going to be stacked up against when it comes to something like uh, Barolo or Brunello that that may be a tougher spot for them to succeed than some other categories. But I do know that they are, like I said, they protect that reputation quite carefully and they, they do have end consumers in mind whenever they choose to, you know, kind of go through with these private label projects. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I think the, the thing that's interesting to me about all of it is just this idea that, you know, there would be this massive market out there. And I do think that what makes it so curious is why we why we are so obsessed as a, a consumer base with like drinking a Brunello di Montalcino, wanting to have that experience, but being okay with drinking something that is so, so, so much cheaper and not then questioning why it might be. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that like it's just not as good. But Adam, I think I want to actually make a point here, too, because this reminded me of something I wanted to say really quick, which is that I think there's also this is trading in on a kind of widely known, widely kind of observed trope, whatever, that the cost of fine wine is all bullshit, right? That it's all a scam. That's true. And that that you're paying $100 for wine because, you know, the people who kind of think that way are like, well, it's not. Costco, who's the one who's ripping me off, it's the $150 
bottle of Barolo that like, how could it possibly cost that much? It can't possibly be worth it. Whatever. The whole thing's a scam. And look, Costco can sell a $30 bottle of it. So how could it possibly cost 150, 200, $300 for this? And I don't mean, I think probably most of the people listening to this podcast, certainly you and I understand that even within relatively highly controlled appellations like Barolo, there are still wide ranges in terms of not just quality, but specificity and and production methodology to some extent and scale and all that stuff. So I don't think we need to go out of our way to defend why two bottles with the same appellation on them might cost widely different amounts of money. But I do think there are a lot of people who like the idea of spending a decent amount of money on wine. They don't necessarily want to grocery store bargain wine, but they see themselves as being too smart to fall for the con that is high end fine wine. Yeah. I think that's a that's definitely a fair point. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean obviously there's a market for it or as you said, no one would do it. I just again I think it's it's so interesting that we do have this this market that exists in alcohol because so many people are so convinced they're getting ripped off. Right. And so therefore like there's another opportunity for the retailer to instead of like trying to help educate the consumer as to why that is not the case for some things, just says I'm going to take advantage of that misinformation, you know, that misinformation that you have and that knowledge gap that sits there and exploit that by actually selling you something that's a higher margin for me <laughs> makes you think that you're actually getting a better deal. It's brilliant. I mean, it's really brilliant, but you know, I think and and that's where I think this is different than for example like because I'm sure some people are going to say to me, "Well, Adam, no, this is isn't this the same as fashion or automobiles?" Or no, because like if you are buying, I don't know, if you've done all the research and, and learned that a suit supply suit is of the same quality as I don't know a thousand dollar one from Armani, right? You did the research yourself, and suit supply is they are a brand, and they're they're selling you that story, and you're still wearing a suit supply suit. You didn't go into like I don't know. Walmart and buy the Walmart suit that's called you know I, that that's a different kind of thing or same with the cars right a Genesis is of uh, the same high quality as other European luxury automobiles but it's made by Kia I think right that's a, a very different thing I think because that still is you know Kia trying to build a luxury brand mm-hmm. um, so I just I find it very different than what exists here in alcohol and this idea that yeah everyone's trying to screw you so let's take advantage of that by making a liquid that we are going to just tell you trust us is just as good because you're never going to have that liquid anyways because everyone's trying to screw you with that liquid so but this one is only going to cost you 30 bucks or in the case of the of the bourbon at total wine 60 or 70 but trust us you never want to go searching for blends and this is basically the same thing it definitely is a thing where these these stores have the advantage of having a tremendous amount of knowledge about their customer base to to sort of identify these particular spots where they think you know, maybe they see, hey, we tried bringing in $60, $70 Barolo. It didn't sell. But we, we we know that we think our consumers want something like that. So what if we do a Kirkland Signature version of it? Or, hey, we know people come in all the time asking about Blanton's and we know we're not going to ever have any or almost right. never going to have any. But we have to have something to sell them. And why not direct them to what we can tell them is a, you know, a credible Blanton's alternative? And in this case in particular, it doesn't say total wine on it. It's just a kind of a, a house brand that people don't necessarily know that it's got a horse on it. You know, maybe that, maybe that makes them happy. I, 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 it's wild. I, it's such an interesting part of the landscape. And the other part of it, and the last thing I wanted to say is despite 
I think our comment that, you know, there's certainly probably some people who buy this and then are a little bit ashamed of it. It's also, I think, makes up a bigger share of sales than we're aware of. Like these private label brands are a bigger part of the alcohol industry than I think is commonly thought of or talked about. But because they're never on bar menus, they're never on, you know, wine lists of restaurants that get any kind of, or any kind of wine list, but certainly not wine lists that get any kind of attention. They tend to fly under the radar of, uh, for lack of a better word, media and, and us types, because we just don't encounter them that often. And yet, like I said, I think volume-wise, they probably make up a bigger part of the industry than we would think. Well, I think, you know, I think the dirty secret that no one probably wants to talk about is that I don't think that private label wines just exist in restaurants. I From people that I've spoken with and wine producers that, you know, I know and have spoke, you know, talked about this, there's a lot of private label wines that exist in restaurants too, oh, yeah. especially for restaurant groups. And yeah. Again, it's for the same reason. That wine can be a massive margin for the restaurant. And that's why, hmm, this random rosé from Portugal is always on the list and always by the glass. Like, because the restaurant's getting it themselves through some supplier and they're private labeling it. So that also you can't, you can't go find it. And most consumers don't care to go find it, right? They just, they want a nice glass of rosé. At the restaurant, they don't really care, and the restaurant gets to make a higher margin. So it, it is everywhere, and it's just it's really interesting that it's so, um, such a big part of the industry, and we talk about it not as much as we should. Yeah, for sure. All right, Zach. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you next week. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com, and have a great week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.